It's 420 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. To kick off today's show, we'll hear about a couple of great upcoming events. Gentry Sayers joins us from the University of Victoria to tell us about an upcoming event. Then Ken DeHoff and Burl Burlingham will come from the Pacific Aviation Museum, and they're going to tell us about the B-5N Torpedo Bomber Restoration. And of course, uh, we'll learn about the Panoramic uh, Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, or PANSTARS, with Eugene Manyar and uh, Larry Deneau from the Institute for Astronomy. Also, uh, Richard Wainscote is also here. Absolutely. We always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation. So you can contact us. You can call in or send us a tweet after the break. And first up, we want to welcome Gentry Sayers all the way from the University of Victoria, and he's here to tell us about remaking old media with new technologies. Welcome to the show, Gentry. Well, thank you. Now, when I got the sort of the description of what you're talking about, uh, there was there were elements that we often talk about at the show, which is 3D printing and kind of the maker movement. Yeah. <clears throat> so, how do you kind of connect sort of this 3D printing and maker movement with this old technology. What's the connection there? Yeah, yeah. So at the uh, University of Victoria, I direct a lab called the Maker Lab in the Humanities. Um, we're actually uh, based in the Department of English, but mm-hmm. we actually operate across fine arts and the, the Faculty of Humanities. Uh, and basically what we do is we use computer numerical control techniques like laser cutting, 3D printing, uh, routing, to make old technologies that we think once existed, um, but they they no longer are available, say, in museums or in archives. So it's actually neatly tied to basically reproducing fictions or reproducing elements of history that we no longer have at hand. Now, is this uh, purely looking for genuine archaeological historical elements? I mean, when you hear listening to you talk, I yeah. think of steampunk. I think of sort of the imaginary possible future that could have happened with, for example, steam power technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's not uh, that that far, I'd say, off into the imagination. We often have um, items that are physically available, but they no longer work. So one basic uh, example here would be a... Um, a stick pen from 1867 uh, that inside of it uh, had a mechanism that allowed the jaw to move uh, and the eyes to roll and you would wear it in a cravat. So it was kind of like a wearable technology Mm. um, but in the museum that it exists, it's in the Victorian Albert Museum in London, it no longer works, right? So the mechanism was quite small and we're interested to see if we can get that pen working again, if Mm -hmm. we can kind of reinvent it or reanimate it using new technologies uh, such as 3D printing and and other CNC techniques. you know, the, the image that I kind of conjured in my mind when you were describing this is uh-huh. almost like something out of Star Trek where you <laughs> go and, yeah. you know, maybe enter in what it is that you want to create and the replicator produces yeah. this thing that perhaps came from another era. Uh-huh. Right? And, and sort of it's kind of what you're doing, right? You're trying to create something that might have maybe been created a couple hundred years ago mm-hmm. and use some of the new technologies to do that. Yeah, and then we also make uh, the 3D models available, right? So once we produce something, we circulate the models online through a so a mechanism like GitHub or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to try and make as much of the project open source as possible um, so that we're interested to see how other people might conduct the research differently than us. Now, mm-hmm. the, the fundamental idea I find very attractive, which is, of course, melding what we would consider cutting-edge or leading-edge technology uh-huh. with 3D printing and fabrication, 
education and the maker movement, for example, but with the humanities, with, um, you know, kind of the warmer and fuzzier sciences mm-hmm. in a way for, for a university. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that kind of interaction? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so as I said before, we work across the Faculty of Humanities and the Faculty of Fine Arts, uh, and it's been fascinating because we have basic questions about how to um, exhibit the materials we have, uh, why things like um, the materials we're using matter, um, when these things kind of uh, walk along the border between art and craft, right, uh, that I think are essential. But also, I do a lot of media history work. I write books and articles about media history, about old media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I usually deal with archival materials that are flat, right? They're, they're patents. Uh, they're fictions. Um, they might be, um, say, articles published in magazines. Um, so I like to think of it as, as taking these 2D materials and extracting them into 3D spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's essential to work with artists in these environments because they're well-versed, obviously, in this, in, uh, this kind of research. Mm-hmm. Well, now, t- when we're talking about uh, when we're on radio, I, I, I was you mentioned the pin that mm-hmm. had a little mechanism as if they're trying to reproduce. Uh, I see that you have a project called an octophone, and you octophone, know audio yeah. is always and probably one of the earlier methods of media that came after stone tablets and writing, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, tell tell us about the octophone. Yeah, so the octophone was patented by a fellow named E. E. Fernay Dalb in 1919, um, originated around 1913, uh, but developed in the 20s and 30s. And the idea was that essentially you took a book and you placed it over a sheet of glass, much like you would a scanner, um, and it would translate uh, the text, usually the negative space actually around the text, into a series of audible tones uh, intended for people who were blind, right, so that they could translate text uh, into sound uh, and and interpret it. Um, This is actually one way of thinking about this early technology as an early optical character recognition technology that Mm -hmm. you would see, say, in something like Google Books, where we use um, OCR to find text within books. Um, So we're interested in, again, historicizing the present and the new stuff that people often use uh, in these stories. So the stories, for example, about Mary Jameson, who was blind, who was a kind of key developer in the optophone and and figuring out, again, how the optophone worked because a functioning one is no longer available to us. Yeah. Now, now, Gentry, uh, you're coming all the way from the University of Victoria. I mean, what kind of brings you to Hawaii? I know you have a couple of events that you actually have done yesterday and, and one that you're going to be doing tomorrow. Kind of tell us what actually brought you over here. Yeah, so um, I'm very fortunate to be here uh, um, in support from the uh, Digital Arts and Humanities Initiative, DAHI, uh, specifically Richard Rath and mm-hmm. David Goldberg invited me. Um, Richard does a lot of work around sound and a lot of work around old media, and I think they were also interested in these intersections between the arts and the humanities around technological questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of part of it. Uh, I do a lot of digital studies work uh, that's comparable or similar to what uh, Rich and his team is doing here. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of the work that you do is, you know, sort of recreating, as you mentioned, or is it also kind of doing the scanning to do the, the, the capture of an actual existing artifact in order to be able to reproduce it? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit between. So we, we often start with the physical materials. We scan them. We usually use either something like photogrammetry, where you stitch a series of 2D images into a 3D model, or we use structured light scanners uh, to, to turn it directly into a point cloud. Um, we then usually edit that model in something like Rhinoceros pretty, pretty, um, with, with a series of, of a lot of post-production, to be honest, um, and then fabricate it. The interesting thing, actually, we found in the research is that when we do the modeling and the scanning, we can't fabricate right now. Um, with the quality of the model we have, so we actually have to degrade the models that mm-hmm. we produce in the in the digitization process to make to hold them in hand. Mm-hmm. Now, that- are you are you seeing um, in you know at least in the community of the uh, University of Victoria? I mean, are you seeing a growing sort of maker movement happening mm-hmm. uh, in? Let's say Canada in in you know British Columbia in at University of Victoria. Yeah, um, 
I, I see in working um, in classrooms and working on campus and seeing it on, on many other campuses, I see, especially with undergraduate and graduate students, an increasing interest in tactile media and histories of analog media. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a number of reasons to explain that. You could link it to maker media, right? Uh, I think you could link it to a number of things. Uh, but I think it's it's basically a growing interest in, in life off a screen and the way that things may have worked prior to you know the emergence of digital communications and network communications. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as a researcher, the key question how to do that work without um, kind of producing a nostalgia for analog mm. media, right? But to, so to be critical about it and to learn a lot about it, but to not act as if, you know, things were necessarily always better because <laughs> they were analog, right? You could easily get into that sort of territory. Um, but yeah, I do see that as an increasing, increasing interest amongst students. Um, and I think for good reason. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the fundamental objective of uh, an initiative like this? Now, certainly to be able to take something that conceptually existed and is documented and turn it into an actual working prototype mm-hmm. so that you could, for a class or for educational purposes, see how it might have worked. Um, but does this also help preserve these things for a longer period of time? Is it largely for educational purposes, like I mentioned, you know, in terms of letting people take, hold it in their hands? I mean, um, when you, if you evaluate this program as a success, if you've been able to scan and reproduce hundreds of these fantastic artifacts, I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the benefit of that? Yeah, so from a, his, a historical point of view, one of the main things that we're doing is we're testing claims that are in the archives about how things worked um, to see if they're actually true. Like in the history of technology and media, you see just a, a, an incredible amount of hyperbole and exaggeration. And when I go through and I study these technologies, people that were saying they go to, say, World's Fairs and exhibitions, and they say it worked this way. You pressed a button and it automatically happened. I'm like, that thing didn't have a button. <laughs> like that, that was just cooked up, right? right, right. So actually going through and seeing where there's, there's fiction in the archives and testing that fiction. Um, but the other one is uh, I like to say that we prototype absences, right? So we're actually pr- producing physical things that aren't in the archives and putting them there. And for historians of technology and media, that's central, right, is to, to put things that people take for granted as, as obsolete or as, as gone as fiction and say, no, they were actually central to, um, say, the, the late 19th and early 20th century and, and then the development of our present day technologies uh, and to give people, yes, the chance to study them on screen and in hand. Well, gentry, people... Yeah. In- technology way back then exaggerated what their products could do. It's it's amazing how times have changed. So um, have you had any surprises so far in terms of this kind of work? Something like, well, okay, now that we have this and we can turn it around in our hands and feel it, we have a different context for what we thought we knew from the written record. For yeah, for sure. Uh, my my favorite example right now is a is a, I I call it like a cabin experiment. It was outside of Copenhagen by a fellow named Valdemar Paulsen, um, eighteen ninety eight. Uh, he ran a piano wire from the top of one corner of the room to the bottom corner, uh, attached to it a trolley and essentially a demanufactured wall mounted telephone, uh, and ran a series of essentially magnetic recording experiments, uh, most of which have been say you know discounted it as possible. But we've been running these in the lab and saying, actually, these could have been physically possible. No, the results weren't exactly high fidelity, mm-hmm. right? But they were audible. Uh, and I've only found one illustration of these. This was um, by a fellow named Marvin Cameras in the mid-century about the documentation of magnetic recording. Um, but if this is true, this would essentially make this 1898 uh, the first instance of magnetic recording in, in, in historical um, materials that I've seen. Wow. No, I yeah. think this would be a you know kind of a fascinating sort of historical continent between what you might find in books and then yeah. what you know what might actually physically exist. I think that's great. Now yeah. you're going to be doing a talk tomorrow. 
Can you give us some details on where, when that's going to take place? Yeah. So it's happening on the, the University of, of Hawaii at Manoa campus tomorrow at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find a little bit more about it at uh, dahi.manoa.hawaii.edu. Okay. Um, the talk is going to be, I'm going to look at three case studies where we're prototyping these old technologies. I'm going to talk a little bit about the historical aspects of it, a little bit about the concept, uh, conceptual material, um, and a little bit about the various C and C techniques that we're using. Uh, so generally, this this notion of prototyping absence to give people a sense of how you can use new technologies to do historical work. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. and that's going to be at the iLab, I think the new <laughs> the new uh, facility that they have over at Building Thirty Seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is in Building Thirty Seven. We'll right. put the link on our show notes as well at bitemarkscafe.org. Uh, Gentry, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, up next, we have Ken DeHoff. He's the executive director of the Pacific Aviation Museum, Pearl Harbor, as well as the great Burl Burlingham, their historian there. And they're here to tell us about their B-5N torpedo bomber restoration. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Wow. Thank you for having us back to talk about another airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, um, we got the notice about this uh, B-5N, and, you know, it's it's interesting because— I think it's been around for a little while, but it's going through a pretty major sort of restoration. I mean, tell us what is happening right now. Well, first, let me say, you guys have great synchronicity because we're going to be going into all sorts of new manufacturing techniques to restore this 75-year-old airplane. Laser cutting, 3D printing, (laughs) and good old-fashioned riveting. As well as using some very old documents that that came out of the manufacturer, uh, so that we can so we really can rebuild parts that aren't with it any longer. This is a great airplane. First of all, I mean, think about that. 1941. This airplane was the airplane that did, both delivered torpedoes that sunk the uh, the battleships in Pearl Harbor, as well as uh, from 9,000 feet dropped the bomb that went into the Arizona Memorial and blew the magazine apart. Mm-hmm. So the airplane has been actually been around since 1937. Uh, this model was built in 1939. And there were 1,140-some of those built. And so there's really no models of it around any place in the world. This is the last full uh, airplane that uh, that exists. And so we're pretty excited about what we're going to do. We've got the plans for it. Um, as Burl said, uh, we're going to experiment with some 3D printing and making the, the spars and the ribs for the fuselage. Um, we just found the engine for it, and so we'll be excited about bringing that, bringing that engine over and, and mounting that engine up. So from what I'm hearing, I mean, do you have a set of blueprints somewhere that outlines the, the actual specifications of uh, the we plane? Ha- we have a lot of structural drawings. Uh, we don't know that they are completely there or not or whether they match, and assembly drawings for aircraft often don't exactly match. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The thing about the Kate, and it's called a Kate, uh, that was our code name. Actually, we say the Kate is out of the bag now because we oh. kept it secret for a while. Um, I'm going to ask you why, how that name came about, but, you know, go ahead. There are certain aircraft that are just icon icons, mm-hmm. and we all know them. You know, the P-51 Mustang, the Supermarine Spitfire, the Mitsubishi Zero. And the Kate is one of the iconic aircraft of World War II. It is one of those planes that almost anyone who's read anything about World War II has heard of. However, no one's seen one since 1945 until you, we have one out at our museum. Wow. And it's a fascinating airplane because it is on the cusp of the transition of aircraft technology from the 1930s into the 1940s. Now, I mean, now you've had this in your possession for a little while, right? 
It's been undercover for a while. I'll let Ken talk about that. Uh, uh, we picked it up out of the South Pacific uh-huh. and uh, put it in a container. And now, 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 when you say you picked it up in the South Pacific, I mean, in what condition was it? I mean, did you pull it out of the swamp? Or, I mean, what, what's the story? Well, this is another real interesting story because the airplane actually was a flyable airplane. And on October 14th, 1945, after, a month after the Japanese had surrendered, that airplane flew from one air base to a, to a uh, New Zealand Air Force mm-hmm. air base and was turned over to the New Zealand Air Force. And after the war, um, all the, uh, the, the pilots and the soldiers and the, and the sailors wanted to go home. And so they simply pushed it into the weeds. And there it sat for another 70 years. Oh, yeah, in the weeds? And, and so this airplane um, has never been wrecked. It was a flyable airplane, uh-huh. and so it's pretty, uh, uh, I'd say it's pretty complete, except that uh, a lot of people uh, scavenged uh, the parts uh-huh. off of it. Uh-huh. And so one of the things we're looking for, as people still open up their footlockers of their grandfathers and find things in there that, uh, wow, this came out of a period that I don't understand. There's instruments, there's uh, um, documents, there's um, manuals. That, uh, that we'd love to have. And, and that's all part of the restoration is being able mm-hmm. to collect the um, the parts of the airplane from the community and bring them back together and, and install them. Uh, guaranteed. I, I can already, already tell you a story that uh, the bomb site on the aircraft is is just a long tube. And it's stuck through the uh, the floorboard of the aircraft. And the, the middle seat uh, pilot or the middle seat uh, navigator um, bombardier uh, would look through this and sight in his, tar- his target and then release the bomb. That we've already acquired. We had uh, we, we told uh, a community in Australia that we were looking for this, and uh, lo and behold, they found one and shipped it to us. That's amazing. Now, uh, Burl, you mentioned you know the Kate's out of the bag. I have to note that we had you and Ann Rada here a few weeks ago to talk about the museum in general and aviation history and some of the planes you'd really, really, really like to have in your collection. And boy, this was a, was a great surprise. I mean, what did it take to bring the Kate here? Uh, money, I believe, wasn't it? <laughs> took, took a lot of money and a lot of negotiation. And uh, and then um, some of the contractual requirements, contractual requirements was to keep your mouth shut about it for a few years so that we can see uh, what other parts we can find on that. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've kind of lived by that. And, uh, uh, and now that the 75th anniversary is here and we've still got a few um, Japanese Kate pilots alive, we're excited mm. about having them come and help um, tell the story, um, show us where things really were, and how things might have worked. So, so Ken, tell us, you know, uh, there we got the press release. It's a big announcement. I mean, what is Front it? Page. What is it that people can come and see? Because you're still in the restoration mode, right? So, what can people come and see? We have the fuselage on display, as well as one of the outer wings with the rising sun painted on it. And so, just to be able to look at that, um, it's uh, it's. I want to say it's almost spiritual to, to see what that. It's, uh, it's fascinating because, like I said, it's 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 a transition aircraft between old and new technology, aviation-wise. I mm-hmm. mean, it's got some crude stuff in it, and yet it's got flush rivets, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's that's a very sophisticated type of technology for that time period. Great. The and it's also important in restoration that the plane is not a crashed airplane. I mean, it's got about a third of it missing, maybe. But that stuff was just cut off by souvenir hunters. Uh Because it didn't crash, it's not twisted. 
Right. Everything that's still there is still in alignment with each other, and that's invaluable when putting an airplane back together. Yeah, it's, that's going to make it work go much faster, and uh, we're going to be able to uh, do that, most of that work, in uh, in Hangar 79 there on historic Ford Island. Mm-hmm. Again, those are hangars that survived the uh, the December 7th bombing and attack, and, uh, and we're really pleased to be the stewards of that. So when you come to Pacific Aviation Museum, you not only get to see the aircraft, but you get to see and feel the site of where um, uh, the, uh, the event that drug United States into World War II started. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Burl, if somebody wanted to find more information about this or about the museum, where can they go on the web? PacificAviationMuseum.org. Well, Ann's going to love you for that. <laughs> and that w- and just follow us on Facebook because we'll be posting stuff about the Cape constantly. Good. Well, thanks, uh, Ken and Burl, for joining us. All right. And we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Richard Wainscote and uh, Eugene Menier and Larry Deneau, all talking about Pan Stars. What are we learning from the surveys performed by the Pan Stars? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Next time in Studio 360... It was just an offhand comment. And said, what you really need is sexual healing. Which turned into one of the greatest songs ever. When I get that feeling, I want the unlikely story behind Marvin Gaye's R&B classic. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Friday at 4 p.m. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Martin Adams, author of Land. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a new economic paradigm during On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. And welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today, we have a full crowd here in the studio. We have Richard Wainscote, and he's the Principal Investigator for the Near-Earth Objects Project. And, of course, we also have Eugene Menier, and he's with uh, he's also with the Institute for Astronomy working on PanSTARRS. And uh, Larry is the Chief Software Architect of the PanSTARRS Moving Object Processing System and since 2004. And, of course, uh, you know, we want to learn about these uh, massive image surveys. And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments and that number to call if you don't already remember it, it's 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Now, you know, we've, uh, we've covered uh, and, and um, you know, we've, we'll talk about PanSTARS for a little bit and some of the surveys that it's done. And, and I think uh, we, we got a kick out of the rogue planet that was, uh, I guess, sort of mapped out and, and uh, discovered as a result of PanSTARRS. I mean, maybe give us a little bit about uh, the history of that discovery. Sure. That, that's a really interesting object. It's extremely 
low-mass object that's not quite a star and not quite a planet. Mm-hmm. It's actually planet mass, but it's floating free in space. And we found that object. Uh, it was actually myself and a couple of the other folks at the IFA who led this operation. Mm-hmm. We found it by looking at the colors of this object in the PanStars data and also notice, noticing that it was moving fast across the sky. And then we followed up with that with an uh, infrared telescope on Monica, the IRTF, and another big telescope, Gemini, and got spectroscopy to, to decide that it's actually the low mass that it is and associated with this nearby group of stars that are moving together called a young moving group. Mm-hmm. So then we know the age and we know the temperature, and that is the way we can tell the mass of the object. Mm. How, how far? Did you determine like how far this object was from Earth? Yeah, that's right. We did. It's about, um, if I remember, it's about 35 parsecs, which is about, uh, what is that, about 100 light years. Okay. Actually, I'm, I'm flipping it. It's about 35 light years, which is about 12 parsecs. Okay, okay, okay. I love astronomy math. Now, again, this show is a, <laughs> a big fan of astronomy and stargazing, and we have talked about pan changing stars in the, the name. past. Well, we talked about changing the name of the show, the Exoplanet Palooza. Exoplanet Palooza <laughs> was on the short list. So, um, But for those who are uh, unfamiliar with uh, pan stars, Richard, perhaps, I think you'd be best uh, suited to kind of give that overview of, well, one, that great acronym. Well, the acronym is Panoramic. Survey for oh, good no, luck. no no panoramic <laughs> it's, it's panoramic really survey telescope, telescope and, and rapid, rapid response, response system. Yeah. <laughs> so you I see, I'm not that. not too good at the, the acronym. It's not not my favorite acronym. I but. see. Well, so, t- so but for the program in general, if you can uh, yeah, give us a little history of you know Panstars one, Panstar two, and I mean, what was the primary thing that you were you sort of started to look for? I, I think the the detection of, of dangerous objects has always been. One at the forefront of of, of the mission of PanStars, mm-hmm. but I think initially PanStars did a big survey of the sky, and it kind of got a little bit derailed from what I think was its its big strength, which is is detecting these dangerous or potentially dangerous objects that might hurt people in the in the future. So it, it did a big survey and, and did a lot of science, and the science is a lot of the science is still to be discovered and mm. and, and extracted out of the data. And that, that big survey went on until 2014, and since then, the funding of the telescope changed. And now the, the, the main funding of the telescope comes from the NASA Near-Earth Object mm-hmm. Observation Program. And we're doing this, this, very, this dedicated survey looking really hard for dangerous objects every single night of the, of the, of, of the year that the weather is clear. Now, uh, you know, I, um, I don't want to, you know, dwell in the past, but, you know, when the PanStar uh, system was up and, and Gene, you were talking about, you know, this, this sort of rogue planet, 35 light years away. I mean, it's pretty far out. So has the PanStar system, you know, is it, are you focusing in on, when you say near Earth, I mean, that's like within the orbit of, of Jupiter, right? Or are, are you talking about, <clears throat> you know, light years away, and, and objects coming in? Because at 35 light years, that's a pretty far stretch, right? Well, PanStars is interesting because we do it all. We, we do, do the asteroids that could hit us that are closer than the moon, but we also are looking at things that are as far as the edge of the universe. The uh, most distant quasars have been discovered by PanStars. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're looking at all ranges. And the science from this initial survey that Richard mentioned is really uh, allowing us to do pretty much any kind of science in astronomy that you could do by looking at the brightness and positions of objects in the sky, from the things in our galaxy to 
the nearby galaxies that are uh, just our cosmic neighbors in terms of galaxies, and all the way out into the, the evolution of the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry, you you have a great deal of experience, uh, nearly a decade, I, would, I, I believe, working with pan stars and, and, and systems of this. And because you're the chief data architect, we certainly want to get into talking about sure. just how much data. I mean, Bert loves Big data. <laughs> but when we talk about a panoramic sky survey and we talk about still working through the data that was collected, how broad a swath of the sky are we talking? Because certainly we, from a single position, don't see everything. So just really how inclusive is that survey? So the survey, well, let me clarify something first, which is that um, so I, I've been involved in the data processing for the asteroid part of the survey. I see, I see. Eugene has been the data architect for the image processing, which is a little bit more directly related to the sky coverage that PanStars uh, can can do. Um, but to answer your question, um, PanStars tries to cover as much of the visible sky from Hawaii. So from any point on Earth, you cannot see the entire sky, even you know as the Earth is orbiting the sun, you're limited to um, about 75% of it over the year. Um, so in Hawaii, we can see um, over a year, about 75% of the entire you know sky. And on a given night, um, you know, a little bit more than half of that. So PanStars, the telescope, is able to survey a good fraction of that. Yeah, I think on a given night when we take about 600 pictures, those cover an area of about a tenth of the whole sky mm-hmm. at a time. Mm-hmm. So, so, Gene, I mean, when you are taking those scans uh, as a, as a near-Earth object, uh, let's say, researcher, are you looking at specific kinds of objects which would perhaps exclude some of those 35 light year objects out or you know how do you differentiate <clears throat> which objects you're going to be studying it's with a, the survey well it's a pretty complicated uh, process that we do we we do um measurement of things that are pretty they're static in the sky so the stars and the mm-hmm. galaxies mm-hmm. and then we we take pictures that um every night that we take a new picture we can take a the difference between that picture and the pictures mm-hmm. that we've taken before, and we can see the things that have changed. And then the data system that I'm in responsible for then ships those detections of things that have changed and moved off to the data system that Larry was responsible for, and then they can identify the things that are asteroids or comets or moving objects in our solar system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about that handoff, Larry, I mean, um, when I imagine talking about something or looking for something perhaps that might be headed for Earth, the other thing that occurs to me is something that's headed for Earth might not move all that much if it's on a trajectory toward Earth. That's right. So the most interesting uh, asteroids, the ones that might hit the Earth actually for quite a long time, are barely moving relative to the background stars, right, because they're kind of coming right mm-hmm, at us. Mm-hmm following the same path, you know, relative to the sky as the Earth is. And so you don't see them move until the very last minute, which could be a few days before impact. And so the that makes the, the search for um, very dangerous asteroids very challenging because it's easy to detect um, moderate motion on a single night. But the slow motions um, against the stars that an asteroid coming right at us would have is much more difficult to detect until it's right on top of you. And then by then, um, you know, the response time is, is much less than you'd like. Yeah, so, yeah, Richard, Richard yeah, and, and also when you're thinking about the <laughs> response, you had pointed out the fact that the funding for PanStars now is all about these near-Earth objects. What was it that really made it so important to get funding for that particular, uh, let's say, survey? Well, I, I think the, the the critical thing is that this is, this is perhaps the only natural disaster that, that we can prevent. Mm-hmm. 
So if, you, if there's a hurricane or an earthquake or a volcano eruption, not a lot you can do about it. But if we can find an asteroid that might hit the Earth or will hit, maybe we, perhaps will hit the Earth in 100 years, we have 100 years to deflect it. And in, in 100 years, people are pretty smart. They're going to find a way to do that. Um, and a little push spaced over 100 years can make a lot of deflection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, so, if we find something that's going to hit tomorrow, there's not, nothing at all anyone can do about it. But if we find something that, that would hit the Earth in 20 years, of course we can do something about it, as long as it's not too big. And mm-hmm. if it's really big, it's going to be really hard to move. They were making a different kind of plan, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, Richard, you wanted to mention a little bit about sort of the difficulty of identifying something moving toward us. Well, I, I think I should just explain to, to the people who are listening what a near-Earth object is defined as. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an object that comes closer than 1.3 times, 1.3 astronomical units, or 1.3 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. So anything that comes closer to the sun than that is, is, is something that at some point in the Earth's history might affect Earth. And i just touch a little bit more upon what Larry said about the, the ones that, that might hit us. They, their motion is entirely caused by out the Earth's rotation. If they're coming right at us, you kind of think of it as, as looking down a gun barrel. So the motion of the asteroid that is coming at us is, is caused by our motion as we spin around the Earth as, once a day. Mm-hmm. So if something is really close to us, we can actually see it move in not quite a straight line in the sky. Mm-hmm. And that's a major signature to us that something is really close mm-hmm, and it gets, mm-hmm. gets everyone's attention real fast. You know, uh, I think it might have been a couple of years ago that we had uh, um, Ed, I think Ed Liu uh, from uh, the B612 Foundation. Uh, is there any sort of relationship between the, 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 let's say, the cataloging and the mapping of what you folks are doing uh, with what he wants to accomplish with, with uh, this, this foundation? Well, I, th- I think the 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 prospects for a NASA-funded mission have, have gotten a lot better. So now there's a, a NASA-funded um, mm-hmm. mission called NEOCAM that's starting to look like it might get funding. Right, because uh, I think at that yeah. point in time, um, NASA wasn't even interested in building this sort of like a, a defense mechanism, right? Yeah. So the NEOCAM is a sort of a similar kind of idea of looking in the infrared from space for near-Earth objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the hope is that with something like that and, and with a future big telescope called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope that we can make a lot of progress in finding these things. Now, Eugene, you know, you, you focus on the imagery side, and certainly, Bert and I have a lot of photography friends, so uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask some of these questions. Um, you, Richard talked about, you know, seeing slight movement and saying that's a telltale sign, but you could also might have a wobbly camera. I mean, so there's different things that you have to adjust for, whether it's the atmosphere or your lenses. Um, what kind of imaging hardware are we talking about with the with PanStars? And there are two telescopes, correct? That's right. There's there's two telescopes. We first put together PanStars 1, and it's a they're both, both telescopes are essentially the same uh, design. They have a, a telescope mirror that's about one and a half meters, 1.8 meters across. And the camera, the most important part of it is the camera is the largest astronomical camera in the world, and they each have one. And the camera has about, it's one and a half billion pixels, so it's basically 150 of your iPhone cameras in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the camera can see a large area of the sky at once because of the optics of this telescope. 
Um, and uh, you asked about the precision of measuring the positions of things and, and compensating for the atmosphere and everything. And we do have to do a lot of that. When we, every, every picture, we have to map the coordinates of that picture onto the sky. And we can do that extremely accurately because we've seen, measured the sky so many times now. And we can use the stars themselves to map out that transformation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with the, I guess, the amount of gigapixels that you're collecting, uh, tell us a little bit about what it takes to actually analyze that. I mean, and, and a lot of computers. So we have. When you say a lot of computers, are you talking about a lot of processors all working in parallel? Exactly. To- yeah. So we have a cluster on Maui that has about 3,500 uh, processor cores. So the UH just recently bought a supercomputer cluster, which mm-hmm. they installed on Manoa campus, and they have the same size number of, clus- of cores in that cluster as mm. the cluster that we have for PanStars alone. And that cluster also has another f- thing that the UH cluster does not, and that is a lot of storage. We have something like 7 petabytes, that 7,000 terabytes of storage in that cluster that we can put all these images as they come off the telescope into that storage facility. Mm-hmm. Every night we get about a terabyte of data. We're talking to Richard, Richard Wainscott. He's the principal investigator of near-Earth objects and that research project. We have Eugene Magnier, who is an astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy, studying low-mass stars. And we have Larry as well, Deneau, and he is a chief software architect at the, the PanStars and Moving Object Processing System. Um, Larry, so we're talking about big data here, and there's the optical side for sure. But now when we're talking about bits and analyzing that data, are you sitting in front of a screen with green descending numbers like in the matrix and you can just see a, a near-Earth object? I mean, what what is that data processing process? I like? am. I'm, I'm jacked right in just like <laughs> um, No, to, to be honest um, – the search for asteroids operates in what we call this catalog space or at a catalog level. So while Eugene normally deals with imagery, right, the software that uh, Eugene uh, has worked on produces coordinates for things in the images. And an asteroid in a pan-stars image basically looks like a star, except that if you take an image at the same part of the sky 20 minutes later, that star has moved. So that's an asteroid moving in a PanStars set of exposures. Mm-hmm. So the moving object processing system basically plays really fancy dot to dot to dot across hundreds of image, uh, images per night and many nights over a month to find a sequence of these dots, which are um, moving objects, moving through the data. And from those positions, you can back out an orbit for this object and kind of figure out how big it is. And that's basically you know how the asteroid search works. So we sift through, you know, it's the proverbial needle in the haystack. We're looking through billions of these sources that are in the PanStars images that are mostly stars and galaxies, but the occasional asteroid, and then find those asteroids and produce orbits for them. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do find those asteroids and you sort of produce those orbits, uh, does it go into like a catalog and then uh, that catalog is is referenced by uh, a number of other researchers? I mean, what, what actually happens to that extensive sort of asteroid catalog. Mm-hmm. So the um, Search for Hazardous Asteroids is a global cooperative effort. Um, so on one night when we're the first one to detect one of these asteroids, it goes to an organization called the Minor Planet Center in uh, at um, Cambridge at Harvard. And they are the clearinghouse for all uh, positional data of asteroids, comets, and minor bodies in the solar system. Mm-hmm. So they coordinate the effort by which follow-up observatories 
go and chase these objects after they're discovered on the first night to refine their orbits and determine precisely whether it might impact the Earth in a few days or a few years. Now, I can imagine that there's an opportunity for maybe a pro-am astronomer to kind of keep track of that catalog and say, hey, this one looks interesting and try to to take an image of that or to get a look at that? There are a lot of amateurs who follow up asteroids. Um, It used to be a lot more, but we're kind of entering this um, regime where uh, the telescopes have become so powerful and the image processing demands so powerful that your average amateur does not have the technology or the gear to detect the objects that are routinely discovered by pan stars. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask Richard (laughs) the million-dollar question. but More than a million dollars. Yeah, because I want to know which (laughs) one is the most, you know, like nearest potential threat to the Earth. But before we get to that, we have to go to the break. We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Richard Wainscode, Eugene Manier, and Larry Deneau about pan stars and near-Earth objects. Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can tweet us on Twitter or call 941 from the neighbor islands. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. On the next New Yorker Radio Hour, finally, the truth about weddings. You will be seated with a grad school roommate, it is unclear whose, and someone you met at the bride's 16th birthday party. She threw up at that, and she'll throw up at this. That plus a conversation with Julian Castro, a rising star in the Democratic Party, next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Friday evening at 7. On the next On Being, civil rights lawyer Michelle Alexander on her hope beyond the new Jim Crow. People are asking questions that haven't been asked in a long time and saying, how are we going to go about building a movement that can birth something new? I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Eugene Manier, Larry Deneau, and Richard Wainscote about pan stars. And, of course, you can give us a call if you're interested in near-Earth objects. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands, and right before the break, we were going to tempt Richard with our million dollar question. And of course, with all the scans that you've currently done, with all the asteroids that Larry has already identified, what is it that have you determined one that is potentially the most threatening? Well, in all of that work, there are no known asteroids that. There's no danger from anything that's known. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are a, a bunch of objects that there's a small possibility of them hitting the Earth. And there's a lot of people working on, on trying to find, including people in Hawaii, trying to refine mm-hmm. the orbits of those particular objects. So last year, though, we found a, a, an asteroid that was called the Halloween asteroid by, I guess, by NASA. They, they tried to call it the Great Pumpkin, and uh, they, that, they didn't <laughs> stick. stick. <laughs> they didn't stick, and they, they got called the Halloween asteroid. Uh-huh. And this one kind of snuck up on us, and it was a big, big object that n- had not been discovered before and came from a weird direction and kind of caught people a little bit by surprise. Mm-hmm. And if that something that big hit the Earth, we're talking about a million people dying probably, depending on where it hit. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty serious size object, about 600 meters in diameter, 
And, and when it was imaged with radar, it, it even looked like a skull, which is kind of fitting for mm. something called the Halloween asteroid. Nice, nice. Yeah. So what did they determine to be the actual, you know, let's say, orbit of the Halloween? Well, it, it, right from the day, within a few days of, of us discovering it, it was known that it wasn't going to hit. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But it, it was recognized as going to come very close, very good for radar. So when they come close, you can look at, you can fire a radio, a radar beam at them and, and get a really, really nice image of, of an asteroid. Oh, very good. So I, I, you did mention at the, earlier in the show that there was sort of this revival of this kind of project, the, the B-19 or B-16, B-612 B- yeah. uh, project was, well, if, the, if NASA's not going to try to protect us from this, then we're going to have to do it ourselves. But it does sound like that there's renewed attention to it. Is it because of a surprise like that? Well, I, I think the the bigger surprise was in 2013 in February when Russia got a little bit of a wake up surprise when this Chelyabinsk meteorite hit, and that was a uh, it hit in a in a very benign manner. It hit a you know hit the atmosphere in a glancing blow, mm-hmm. so it hit a very shallow angle and exploded very high in the atmosphere. And if that thing had come in more directly and kind of punch through the atmosphere it would have been a much bigger problem so that that made a lot of research a lot of um the, all of the the people who who do the kind of explosion research the nuclear bomb people gave them a lot of things to think about of how an asteroid impact would would affect the earth and and we learned a lot and i think there's, there's st- even still big pieces of that asteroid in lakes that that are still to be recovered in Russia. I remember that. And in fact, you described it as a glancing blow and wasn't direct, but it still blew out windows, flattened trees. It was pretty dramatic. It was, it was very dramatic. And I think the, if anyone sees one of these things now in the sky, be aware that sound travels a lot more slowly than, than light. And the, there will be a shockwave, but it's going to be a delayed shockwave. And if I recall, there was a, a you know, another asteroid that people were sort of looking at and <clears throat> talking about, and then all of a sudden that one actually came in and glanced, you know, uh, the Earth near Russia. And and am I correct in saying that, you know, they didn't, they were unaware of that asteroid? Larry? You so on the day that the Chelyabinsk asteroid hit, um, actually all of the <clears throat> astronomers and NASA were busy following with radar this other asteroid called 2012 DA14, which was another quite large asteroid that was going to come within the Earth's, mm-hmm. uh, within the moon's orbit, distance of the Earth. So it was a big event. It was a large asteroid, um, you know, and whenever one of these happens, it's great to take radar imagery to get a, a high-resolution shape. And so all eyes were on this asteroid as it went through our system. Right. And then on the other side of the Earth, this one hit Russia. So it was um, an amazing coincidence. A lot of people, you know, asked a reasonable question, were these things related? Are they the same object that broke into two pieces or something like that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. They mm-hmm. both had completely different trajectories, um, completely unrelated events. You know, what are the odds of that happening? Very small, but, you know, it did happen. Right, right. And, um, but it just goes to show that, you know, they're not going to be spaced out nicely for us. They'll, they're happen, they'll happen randomly. Um, and so we kind of need to be ready no, I think that time. was yeah, yeah, that was definitely like the the wake up call in terms of uh, how I was uh, watching some of these things. Now we're we're talking to Larry, Gene, and Richard from Institute for Astronomy. We're talking about near Earth objects, and of course, if you want to give us a call, that number is nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Wiley from the Big Island. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, you might recognize me. I, I've called before. Oh, Fantastic. thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm a retired technician from Canada Francois Telescope. I worked 18 years, and um, I'm also Hawaiian ancestry. I have Hawaiian ancestry. You failed to mention that um, Panstars is on Haleakala. Right. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and um, the reason for that is because originally it was supposed to be on Mauna Kea, but then politically it was booted off Mauna Kea and t- taken over to uh, Haleakala. So my question is, how, um, from your perspective, how secure politically is astronomy on Haleakala as compared to uh, Mauna Kea? Thank you. Certainly provocative question there. Um, Richard, do you have uh, any thoughts? <laughs> well, you put me on the spot a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, first of all, on the, the Panstars 1 and 2 telescopes have been built in in existing domes, that's repurposed structures mm-hmm. and, and kind of not a lot of um, major development to, to build them. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a, another big difference that, that I think the university owns the land where the telescopes are located on Haleakala, whereas on Mauna Kea we have a, a lease. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you mentioned you're a former technician for Canada France White Telescope. I'll also put a quick plug in for the Canada France White Telescope. We actually use the CFHT to follow up some of the discoveries that PanStars make. So we mm-hmm. we see it one night with, on on Maui, and we try to chase it the next night mm-hmm. from the telescopes on on Mauna Kea. No, great, and uh, thanks, Wiley, for uh, giving us that call. And and of course, you know, when we were, <clears throat> you know, talking about the, sort of this wake up call. Uh, was it something that NASA was maybe contemplating and this was actually the event that got them to really see the light or was there some other sort of con- convincing that needed to happen? Well, I, th- I think the, 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 the U.S. Congress has been aware of this risk for mm-hmm. many years and, and they basically told NASA to go find 90% of all of the objects that are bigger than one kilometer in diameter. Mm-hmm. And, and this is all the way back in the 1990s that yeah. this effort oh, started. So yeah. perhaps yeah. even before, say, Hollywood movies focused on this particular... A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I think the ho- Hollywood budget is bigger than right. the NASA budget. <laughs> well, uh, And I, I think the, the, the Chelyabinsk event kind of fired up the funding a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think now the funding is 45 to $50 million a year from NASA. It's still... Comparable probably to a Hollywood budget for one movie, but yeah, it's a small movie. <laughs> yeah, and that budget is for the entire Near Earth Objects Program. So, isn't you know, PanStars is a small part of that. There are other facilities, other scientific organizations doing important research uh, for Near Earth Objects. Mm-hmm. We have uh, another question from Dan, a very tall car geek. Uh, he wants to know um, this. I think is in relation to what you mentioned in terms of if you see one, be ready because sound travels slower. So his question is: So if I see one in the sky, I'm worried about the shock wave. What? Do I do or can I do? Stop, drop, and roll? Just say a prayer or call my wife? I don't want to be doomsday or anything like this. The, the chances of you seeing something like the Chelyabinsk event are pretty small. So that's the biggest event since 1910, mm. which was the Tunguska event in Russia. Mm-hmm. So Russia seems to get whacked a lot. It's, a big, it's the biggest country in the world, so it's maybe not so surprising. We don't really know quite so well whether any of these happened over the ocean in, in the intervening period. But I think since nuclear weapons came around, there's infrasound monitoring. So from that monitoring, we know we have a pretty good idea how many events like this have happened. I see. I see. So, um, so in terms of saving yourself, 
I think you definitely want to be away f- from any glass. That seems to be where all of the injuries <laughs> the have happened. Have mm-hmm. Don't be mm-hmm. near any like garage doors, a lot of major doors and stuff like that got completely blown out by the shockwave. Well, thanks for your question, Dan. Now, um, Gene, uh, Richard mentioned the target of finding at least 90% of these. I mean, are, are we? how are we doing on that goal? Is there this catalog of all of these these objects now? Well, Richard probably knows the numbers of the near-Earth asteroids better than I do, but I think we're we're definitely finding more than we might have expected, given the claim for a few years now that we had passed the 90 percentile. Mm. Um, what are the numbers there? So we find, we, I think so far this year, we found five of these big ones. Mm-hmm. And that, that's starting to make me a little uncomfortable with this claim of <laughs> 90 percent, but... So, so Richard, I mean, earlier you said that uh, you know, there, uh, of the known objects that you have already identified and tracked, I'm curious, of the known objects, what percentage is that of the surveys that you've you've done? Is that a, is that like a ninety percent of the you know asteroids out there? Is it ten percent of the asteroids? These known objects, what percentage is it of the total amount? Well, I, I think it's ninety percent of the big ones, the one kilometer size object. Okay, but that percentage ahead. gets pretty small pretty fast as you go look for the smaller ones. So mm-hmm, it's probably ten mm-hmm. percent when you get down to like the hundred and fifty meter objects. So there's got a lot of work to do. Now, um, Larry, in your catalog, um, I imagine we're again we're talking about a large number of objects that are being tracked. So in our on our show, we always talk about the the joy of finding and naming something. I would imagine that these objects are just too numerous to t- have any conversation about giving it anything other than a numerical designation? Well, you're looking for the Dano <laughs> asteroid? There is Dano. a Dano asteroid, actually. Oh, there is? So a, really? friend of my, a friend of mine who discovered an asteroid as part of a survey years ago, they basically, after years, are allowed to they, – they, they're given a handful that they're allowed to name, and he gave me one. So there actually is a Dano oh, asteroid. congratulations. Yeah, so 1990 KN4 or something. Anyway, <laughs> but um, there, there's about 700,000 known you know, cataloged asteroids nowadays, and we're discovering maybe – Fifty to one hundred thousand more every year with great survey telescopes like uh, PanStars. Mm-hmm. Um, the naming process is, um, as you might imagine, uh, this incredibly bureaucratic political process, and names only exist for a few tens of thousands of asteroids, and you know, whereas a few hundred thousand have numbers. So um, we're not holding our breath to be able to name any asteroids discovered by PanStars yet. It could be quite a while before mm-hmm. we're able to do that. <laughs> But comets do get to have the name of the telescope. So you'll see Comet Panstars, such and such, for the this year and that year. Right, because that was another news item I think we ran uh, a few years back or maybe a year back. There was a Panstar comet. Yeah, we actually discover most of the comets these days. Um, mm-hmm. Panstars is discovering, what, 60% of every of all the comets? Um, and what, what, what makes Panstars uniquely capable of identifying these comets? Well, we are really the largest, deepest survey. So okay. we're covering large, most of the area and, the, and finding faint things first. And mm-hmm. we're also, because we're south, Hawaii is further south than a lot of the mainland telescopes, we can find things that are coming up from the south that a lot of the telescopes won't catch until a little bit later in the, year, in mm-hmm. the month. Now, now, Richard, uh, you know, of the uh, $50 million budget that NASA has, how, how well-positioned is PanStars and your program? Are you getting 100% of that? I mean, I'm hoping that you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish we were. <laughs> we're getting a, a small fraction of that, that budget. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who, who are some of the other players that are out there? The, the other big survey at the moment is um, the, the Catalina Sky Survey, mm-hmm. which is in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then we have this new survey in Hawaii that probably Larry would be the best to talk about called ATLAS. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's, what, what, what is this ATLAS? 
So ATLAS is a another NASA-funded near-Earth asteroid survey. You might ask, after Panstars and Catalina, why do we need another near-Earth asteroid survey? Mm-hmm. And the answer is um, there's a different kind of way you can survey based on the kinds of objects you're interested in. So Panstars excels at finding the big, you know, one-kilometer-sized asteroids when they're out in the far part of the main belt before they come back, you know, in Earth space. Atlas is actually looking for our poster child asteroid is the one that hit in Russia a few years ago, right? It's the one that is just about to hit us, you know, it's right on us. And we're actually designed to give us several days to several weeks warning for a what we call a death plunge or imminent impacting asteroid. So we're not uh, sensitive enough to um, find these objects and uh, calculate their orbits for decades uh, into the future. We're good at finding small objects that are right near us that are about to hit. So instead of uh, finding um, things that are far away, we're just looking in the local neighborhood for the stuff, you know, coming right at us. And to do that, we have, uh, instead of an instrument that's very sensitive, we have something that can cover a wide part of the sky. And actually, we're able to uh, observe almost the entire sky right now every single night. So, you know, there's not anything that can sneak by us unless it's coming from the direction of the sun. I was going to ask you that. I mean, what of, what of the one that's coming from the sun? I mean, is there any way of, in, uh, of uh, identifying that uh, particular object? So from the ground, there's just simply no way to look in that direction and see anything that's coming, right? So the, the way to solve that problem is to put a telescope somewhere in space that's looking, you know, between the Earth and the sun and can mm-hmm. see those guys. Okay, very good. So I guess, uh, well, Richard, well, I wanted to ask very quickly. I mean, uh, is it now a matter of just keep doing the good work you do? Is there a, uh, a milestone or a near project that uh, is coming up that we should be paying attention to? I, I think there's there's a lot of potential to keep doing what we're doing. I think the 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 fact that we're going to have a second telescope very soon mm. is is very exciting and it's going to make us probably almost twice as productive. So that's the the near future. I think further into the future there's the there's this very large telescope being constructed in Chile called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope mm. and that's going to have a big impact in this this field. And then there's the 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 proposed Neo, NeoCam, mm-hmm. which is the infrared telescope that would be launched into space and, and look for these things in the infrared. So I think the, we're always going to have a space, a place for the ground-based things like PanStars. And I think that the, there's always going to be a, a, a need for that. There's always going to be a need for things like Atlas as mm-hmm. well. But I think we can make a big dent on it also with, with these future projects. Well, I'm glad that all of you have your eyes on the skies. Well, Richard uh, Wayne's Code and uh, Eugene Manier and Larry Deneau, we want to thank you all for joining us uh, this, this afternoon. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week and we'll talk about entrepreneurship in community colleges. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we'll leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's Painted Zeros and a song called Pretty Rig. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.